Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In this episode, we hear from Edward Trunt of Slingshot Capital. This is a vibrant conversation where Ed takes us into the world of litigation finance. We talk about what this niche of alternative asset management looks like. In short, it's a form of asset management where money managers invest in the potential outcomes of lawsuits. We get into both the mechanics of it, and he also shares a great example of a case of a David versus Goliath scenario. This ultimately ended up in a multi-million dollar settlement after investing in that litigation. And the defendant in this scenario was Caterpillar, the multi-billion dollar heavy machinery company who had to pay up. Building on his knowledge of litigation finance, he founded the first fund of funds that invests in money managers who invest in cases. In our conversation, he details this interesting niche of asset management, including the elements of good managers and good cases to invest in. I'm always surprised at the ways in which value can be identified and capitalized on. In our conversation here, it will very likely open your eyes to another interesting part of our economy. Enjoy the show. Edward, welcome to the show. Thank you. Appreciate you having me. I'm looking forward to this conversation because the world you're in, I think, is something that is, it doesn't get a lot of light. It touches on finance. There's a lot of money involved and I'm sure a lot of risk. And so I want to hear more about that. But the best way we can start is, is perhaps a background on yourself. Yeah. Why don't we start there? Yeah, absolutely. My background might, might be a little surprising uh, given where I ended up, but uh... I'm actually a chartered professional accountant by by training. I also did my chartered business value evaluator uh, designation. But I spent most of my time in sort of lower end of the mid market leverage buyout uh, world with a uh, Toronto based firm uh, by the name of Imperial Capital Group. And then I left that, and I spent uh, about two decades there. Uh, I was a partner there. And I left in 2015 to start a going a, a very different direction. Uh, and that, that direction being commercial litigation finance. And so I was a founder, uh, along with two others, uh, of a group called Balmoral Wood Litigation Finance. And that was, as far as we could tell, the world's first litigation finance fund of funds. And so we didn't invest in cases directly, but rather we were LPs alongside other LPs, typically in, in LPGP type funds. But it, it gave me a great perspective of uh, investing in the litigation finance marketplace and really from a, a global global perspective. Yeah. So I was explaining what you guys do to to my producer. It took me a bit to help him wrap his mind around litigation finance, followed by a fund of funds, who so on and so on. So can you kind of just elaborate on that so so we can find areas to drill in on? Sure. When I started first looking at the litigation finance sector, the way it evolved is uh, from what, what they refer to in the industry as single case risk, meaning that a um, plaintiff had a case, typically a, a good case, very meritorious case, 
but they didn't have the, the capital to really pursue it. And you know, once you get into a piece of litigation, not only do you need to pursue it to a potential settlement, but you have to be prepared for an appeal and, and all the rest of it. And so it's a it's a big commitment and it's risky. But that's really how the the industry evolved. It was a lot of you hear the quote quite often in, in the industry of David versus Goliath uh, type mm. cases. And as a result of that, you know, you had some big wins, and but you have some losses uh, along the way as well. And the other aspect of it, it's it's a relatively new asset class. It's been around the longest, mainly in Australia, almost two decades now, and uh, to a lesser degree in the UK and, and to a lesser degree in the US, at least as it relates to third parties providing financing for pieces of litigation. In the US, we've had for decades now contingency fee arrangements where the lawyers can participate. But up until recently, a third party was not able to enjoin themselves yes. into a piece of litigation. In essence, like selling it as, a, as another asset class. Yes, exactly. Yeah. That's what I thought was interesting was with this asset class piece being, you know, it's something that's non-correlated in the yep. sense that, you know, it almost stands completely separate to anything that's going on in the world. But then you also, you, you must have to value that risk or value that opportunity that's coming out of it and all that. So I know I cut you off there, but uh, maybe we can get in on on some of that as well. Yeah. So in terms of, um, so I'll, I'll just finish the thought very quickly in terms of, you know, given those those inherent risks of the asset class, what we decided was a, a fund of funds made a lot of sense. And for the reason for that is it allows us to be diversified across geography, across size of financings, across uh, case types. And because there wasn't a clear leader in the marketplace, we felt the diversification was was critical to a successful uh, implementation of the fund. And so, and so that's the reason we ultimately went down the fund of funds route. The fund of funds route, when, when you when you're investing in funds, typically these are what are referred to as blind pool funds, meaning you're providing capital to manager, but you don't know at the outset exactly where those uh, those commitments are, are going to end up. Right. And so you really have no capacity to, there's really nothing there to, to value. Now, when it comes time to uh, investing in, let's say, some of the public entities, it would be very rational for you to look at, okay, what have they invested in? And let me value each of those pieces of their portfolio. The challenge is, it is a very, very, and I would almost say impossible asset class to value yeah. uh, on a single case basis. Now, some of the uh, publicly listed funders out there, uh, they, they um, are under IFRS from an accounting perspective, so they have to mark to market. And so they have, they've been forced to try and really value their, their, their various assets. And you know, I think Burford is probably the largest uh, in the world right now. And I, I think they've done a, a credible job, but to get comfort on a single case and, and value in a single case, it's very difficult. And so really what I look at, when I do look at our portfolios where there has been some investments made already, I sort of go back to first principles, You know, why did they underwrite this case and what were the, um, the characteristics of the case at that period of time? And then I look at, okay, what's changed since they've underwritten that case? And is that net positive, negative, or neutral? And and so I make a, a, a I guess a relative judgment call as to whether that case is superior or inferior to when they first underwrote it. Mm. But I, I don't even attempt, quite frankly, to to value these because it's you ultimately have what I refer to as quasi binary risk here, uh, especially if they go through to some sort of uh, a trial or arbitral outcome where the stats are pretty pretty clear as it relates to litigation, it's pretty much 50-50 mm. uh, when it comes to a trial outcome or an determined by an arbitrator. And so most of the fund managers actually try to avoid those situations. And, and certainly when I look 
to invest in a fund manager. I look for fund managers where their portfolio is predominantly made up, their realizations are predominantly made up of settlements, as opposed to those port, uh, those managers which push straight through to um, some sort of determination by a trial or a judge uh, or arbiter. That adds an element of risk that as an investor, I, I prefer not to... Uh, uh, yeah. Interesting. I, I mean, some of the, the terms you're using and how you're framing this up for me, it's got my head just spinning with more questions. If we were to look at the kind of cases that you'd go after or that a fund manager would go after, what do those David and Goliath cases look like? And, and I mean, what is, the, what is the size of the funding? What is the size of the potential case and the outcome? Um, what is the timeline on these? It's yeah. What are the characteristics yeah, those- of these? Yeah, those are all, all great questions. And and the market, you know, not dissimilar to many other financial markets, it sort of bifurcates from the, you know, the micro small size financings to the mid-market and then the then the large ones. And and typically as you go up up the scale, you add uh, both volatility risk and you add uh, duration risk. Mm. And so in my mind, actually the, the probably the sweetest part of the market is actually the small end of the market. The problem there is it's tough to get scale to the point where an institution will look at that and say, yeah, I can put some meaningful dollars to work. And and the other part of scale is, you know, as a manager, can you profitably create a a book of business given that each, each case needs to be underwritten to a certain degree and there's just a certain amount of time and effort that needs to go to that. And so while that's the most attractive part of the market from my perspective, and and the attractiveness I believe stems from, the lack of volatility around duration and return. While it's attractive, it's difficult to scale. On the other end of the spectrum, you've got much more sizable investments. They're obviously of, of greater scale, but that comes with greater volatility around duration. And, and um, Yeah, that's interesting. I could see how on the, the smaller side of it, the cases are probably much more cut and dry and, and probably less, you know, smaller legal teams at the table who are negotiating or arguing back and forth. What are the cases like? And I mean, what is the bite size? I mean, I can imagine there's no money to be made off a million dollar case. You have to have a, a minimum threshold. And what are they, what are they suing over? Well, it's, it's, uh, it's funny. I mean, you, you got, you have some guys that are, are even financing, you know, 20, 30, $50,000 cases. Now oh, really? that's the amount of the, of the financing, the case, the case itself could be in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. So re- okay. relatively small. Uh, there's one manager in the UK that's actually publicly listed called Manalay, and they focus on the insolvency market and typically small ticket insolvency. On the other end of the spectrum, you have the Omni Bridgeways and the Burfords of the world, which are both publicly listed entities, and they do anything from uh, portfolio financings, and, and I'll, I'll describe what that is in a second, to large single case risks. They could be international arbitration, and actually you see a lot of this in Canada where you've got a lot of Canadian mining companies. They go into uh, less developed countries. They plunk in billions of dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars, and the country turns around and says, "Thank you very much. We're going to take mm-hmm. over that mine. Sue us if you want to." And so, there's been a number of cases of, of Canadian mining case mining companies have gone into countries, and they've ultimately ended up in arbitrations where the the outcome is, you know, potentially billions of dollars. Uh, Crystal X is a good example. Rosoro Mining are another good example of, of items that have happened recently. But otherwise, it's, you know, plain commercial uh, disputes, plain vanilla commercial disputes. You might have intellectual property disputes, patent disputes, international arbitration, as I mentioned. You could have um, investor state claims. It, it really runs the gamut. Breach of contract is obviously a popular one. And so uh, really any piece of litigation can utilize uh, litigation finance. 
just to give you an tangible example, just to put yeah, some, sure. some feeling around it, there was a case that that's fairly well known, a company called Miller in the UK. And what Miller did was they created these uh, quick decoupling devices that would attach to larger farm uh, machinery. And so they had a, um, a sales channel with uh, Caterpillar and that it was an on, ongoing relationship for better part of 20 years. They built a nice business out of it. And then all of a sudden there was a change at Caterpillar. The new manager came in and basically said, well, let's copy essentially uh, what Miller had been doing and we'll come up with our own product line. So they did that. They, they copied the product line and they had all the technical drawings in advance because it, you can imagine there needs to be a high degree of technical uh, integration between the farm equipment and this quick decoupling devices. And so Caterpillar had a lot of the designs. And so they, they did that. That put Miller into a really bad situation. They were losing money. It was a family-owned business. Uh, they had to lay off hundreds of people in terms of staff. And so they had really backed in a corner. They had no choice but to pursue litigation. And they did that uh, on their own for quite a while. Uh, and then later on in the process, they brought in a funder based in Chicago by the name of Juris. And they ended up winning, I think it was around initially $73 million uh, against uh, Caterpillar and bumped up with interest. It ended up being $110 million. And so- no kidding. I think the funder may have put in around 2 million and they probably, don't quote me on this, but think of it around a triple, uh, triple their money uh, by the time all these- uh, Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, so, I mean, there's, when you look at it, I mean, and a few of these questions are coming. One would be, this is almost a form of venture capital when it comes from the funder side. And, and so you're looking for multiple X returns. And then there's obviously a deal that's got to be struck. Miller, as I understand, got to a point they said, we can't fund this anymore. We need to bring in uh, a partner to help us fund this litigation. And then they must have struck a deal and said, okay, if we win, this is what you'll get. Yeah. So on the venture capital side, I I would say that uh, there there have been a couple of references to this industry looking like venture capital. I disagree. I I think if you look at a single case and all you were going to do is invest in a single case, then yes, it has it has some venture capital attributes because because of the binary risk. If it ultimately mm. goes to some sort of trial uh, decision uh, or arbitral uh, decision, then yes, you know you, you're adding an element of binary risk, and and that tends to look a little bit more like venture capital. But the reality is, you know, most of the managers in the marketplace they raise uh, these blind pool funds. They'll put 20, 30, 40, 50 cases in there. And because they recognize that if I get if I if I get it wrong on a single case, and that's that's all my fund exists uh, of, then I'm dead in the water. I'm not gonna, I'm right. never going to raise a fund again. And so they understand that there's <clears> risk around that, and the best way to deal with that risk is diversification. Deal with some of the systemic risks that are inherent in, in the asset class, and build uh, a portfolio big enough that you can really emulate uh, the returns in the industry. And I've I've seen over 800, 900 data points now across different geographies that would suggest on average, 70% of the cases that are litigation finance backed are winners. And so, oh, wow. so from that perspective, it looks very different than venture capital, where you know, you're really relying on maybe 10 to 20% of your portfolio to carry the entire portfolio. In this case, it's, it's 70% of the portfolio carries the portfolio. And so I'd say it looks a little bit more like closer to leverage buyout than, than it does venture capital. Yeah. And again, only when you look at it from a portfolio perspective. Yeah, no, I appreciate that kind of nuance and that, and that scope on there. Is there. Is there any time that like funders will back out of claims? And I mean, and I'm curious about kind of from the management side, if, if, if a management team is ever in a situation like this, what does that look like? Can a funder ultimately say, hey, this is where we're capping our risk? 
and they can back yeah. out? And how do you negotiate that? Yeah. So in terms of where they're capping the risk, that, that's typically all uh, figured out in the funding agreements. And that's all done in advance. And, and that's really part of the uh, commitment. However, uh, to your point, there are there can be uh, exits from these agreements, uh, either for co- with cause or without cause. And, um, and so in a with cause scenario, what might happen there is the plaintiff may have articulated a certain fact pattern they got into discovery and uh, either was unknown or it came to light that, well, you know what, that's not exactly the fact pattern or there's a, there's a piece of data that was important that was missing from it. Right. And the funder may look at that and say, well, that, that has a material impact on, had I known that before, has a material impact on whether I would have underwritten this case to begin with. So that that's it, I'm out. And in that case, they can actually still maintain their financial interest, but it also means that they need another party to come in and, and to continue to pursue and finance the case, which can be a little bit tricky, but but it does. Yeah, happen. yeah. And then, and if it's without cause, where there's nothing uh, that was you know breached in the funding contract, there still may be an opportunity for them to back out. But typically, they would leave all of their economics on the table at that point in time. Interesting. Is there any kind of? I guess there probably would be some form of recourse if the you know there's something material left out of the the negotiation that is you know the structuring of that deal. Yeah, so it's in terms of uh, potentially suing the, the the plaintiff. Is that is that? Yeah, basically, hey, we we've invested this much so far, and you didn't actually disclose this. No, I haven't come across many situations where the plaintiff is sued by the funder. Uh, I've actually struggled to think of one, but that's really the, the purpose of that uh, with cause um, clause in, gotcha. the, in the, the funding yeah. contract itself. What an interesting world. You know, something I, I that comes to mind as well, and this ties into some other interviews I've done and. Uh, work with a company called MJ Hudson that I've done in the sense of you being a fund of funds or you managing a, a fund of funds and you're looking out for managers and finding managers who can um, help deploy capital. When it comes to them marketing themselves as fund managers in this specific niche and when it comes to them attracting the capital you control, what do you see or what characteristics do you see in these individuals that attract you and that help build those relationships? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question because this is a, it's a relatively nascent asset class. And so, you know, very different than private equity, leverage bio, venture capital, what have you, there are relatively few managers uh, globally. And so, so you got to start there and there are even fewer managers that have a track record. Uh, and that's, you know, it's very tricky to, to, to raise capital without a track record. Uh, what I've seen some folks do is they'll start off life working in an, uh, from an advisory perspective. And so they'll uh, find opportunities, they'll bring that uh, together with uh, other litigation funders and they'll, they'll sort of use those, those uh, cases to build their own track record and, mm. and then hopefully parlay that into into their own into their own fund. So that that's sort of one approach to take. Another approach would be uh, really to do not dissimilar to what you find in the tech space, a friends and family round, raise a, a relatively small fund. You know, my caution there is if you go that route, make sure your your funds are committed. Number one, and number two, uh, make sure your your portfolio is going to be diversified because you you really only have one kick at the cat to do that successfully. And if you ultimately create a portfolio that's not diversified enough, and it's particularly tricky in this asset class for the reason of deployment risk, which I'll touch on, it, you know, that, that could blow up, uh, blow up your fund. And what I mean by, by uh, deployment risk is, you know, in most asset classes, let's say leverage buyout, 
you, you find an investment, you know exactly right out of the gate how much money you're going to put into that investment. So let's say it's $10 million and you may decide to, to take some money off the table through a dividend recap along the way, or you may decide to add to your exposure, but you know, you know out of the gate exactly how much of your fund you've exposed to that particular investment. In litigation finance, you're making a commitment to finance, but you don't know exactly how much right. of that commitment will ultimately de- be deployed. And so while you create a uh, portfolio on a committed basis, when you look at that portfolio in the rear view mirror on a deployed basis, it could look very differently in terms of how much uh, each of those commitments represent as a percentage of the deployed uh, dollars. Yeah. And, so you, and so really what it means is you need to think about uh, portfolio construction in a very different way. And I would say you almost have to double your exposures as compared to some other asset classes like LBO and, 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 and VC, because there's that, that inherent deployment risk that really doesn't exist in a lot, of, uh, a lot of other asset classes, which makes it relatively unique. Oh, interesting. Fascinating. You also spent uh, a large part of your career in the world of private equity uh, financing. And I, and I know you've also, I think, taken on roles as um, CEO and interim CEO for portfolio companies. And I'd really like to hear your perspectives there and the world of private equity and, and what's happening. And, you know, really for our audience, it's the CEOs and IR pros who we speak to here in how they can build relationships with people in the private equity world. Can you give us a bit of background on what you used to do in the private equity world? Sure. You know, I, I was fortunate in that I got into private equity at the relatively early stages in it uh, of the industry. So I, I got involved in, in the late 90s. I'd say the industry really got got going in, let's call it the 70s, but really in earnest in, in the 80s and, and onwards. And, and from a Canadian perspective, we started a little bit later than the U.S. marketplace. And, and it was very much a cottage industry. You know, fast forward 20, 30 years, it's a highly, highly professionalized industry. Some of the smartest uh, players in the, in the field are, are in private equity. The level of sophistication that uh, some of these uh, private equity firms bring to bear is uh, unprecedented. The systems that are involved, the monitoring, the intersection of, of strategy and finance is you know night and day where it used to be. I mean, the, the industry started off as a as an arbitrage play, a financial arbitrage play, and, and a lot of money was made. But as the market became more and more competitive and more and more perfect, uh, it forced strong uh, private equity firms to think more about strategy and value creation. Right. And so that's very much what the industry is about today. And so if you don't have a, a strong value creation plan in, in the private equity space, in my mind, there's really no, no reason uh, being in it. I guess so. Hey, it really is. You know, you think perhaps it was in the, the 70s and the 80s where, you know, you could go and buy a company, lever it up and and sell some assets out of it. And everybody has a win on your way. Yeah. And, you know, ultimately, I think that that kind of brute force strategy blew up to some degree. Yeah. But now, and, and especially with how competitive it is to, to place money, that what I'm hearing is, is a lot of these firms, they now come in with a, a high degree of sophistication and how they're approaching the deals. And so that's, that's interesting. I didn't, you know, I don't have experience in the world of private equity, so I never thought about that. But uh, you can see that how it would be needed. The competitiveness of the private equity industry was, quite frankly, one of the things that drew me to the litigation finance sector, where you know it's 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 highly inefficient relative to where private equity is these days. Right. So 
Now, but I would also say you have, just given the nature of the asset class, you have less influence on the ability to create value. So it's very limited for, from that perspective. So where the value gets created is really on the front end in terms of case selection. Uh, but once the case selection, there's there's a concept of uh, officious intermeddling, which present, prevents a third party from influencing the outcome of the case in terms of pushing the the plaintiff in one direction or the other. In terms, I was going to ask, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like when somebody invests in in a case, how much influence do they have? Can they help yeah. you know start pushing pushing some buttons, or is it like they have to stay completely hands off? It uh, differs by jurisdiction. In Australia, for example, you've got uh, some more degrees of freedom. In the U.S., uh, less so. And so your sphere of influence is really contained in your in your funding contract. And so it's really an economic a sphere of influence. And so you try to dictate behavior through the economics that are inherent in that funding contract. But above and beyond that, you know, you can provide value by providing your opinion. Some guys will actually get into mock trials and, and that sort of thing to... to wow try to add an element of value so it can uh, try to quantify potential outcomes. But uh, for the most part, in terms of decision-making, it's it's fairly limited. Oh, interesting. I, I'm jumping around here because my brain's just going all over the place for questions, but what about the due diligence process within the world of litigation finance again? Are you finding there's efficiencies there? I mean, I'll draw the analogy of the world of Silicon Valley where it's become now that some of the big names in seed funding have come forward and just said, listen, let's all just work off a standard term sheet. So we all can have these opportunities be on a level playing field and we can make better decisions later is, is somewhat of you know my assumptions of why they've done that. But that's a, to me, a degree of, of uh, a step towards greater efficiency in the marketplace. What about in litigation financing? When you do the due diligence process and you proceed, is there is there best practices and you know how does that how do you approach that? Yeah, so I would say um, most funders focus on five or six elements as part of their due, their due diligence process. So first and foremost is the case merit. So they do a deep dive in terms of the the elements of the case, both on the plaintiff side and the defense side, and really get comfortable that hey, this is a case worth backing. Its probability is sort of north of seventy percent in terms of uh, potential success rates, and and they have enough to base that decision on. And, and the, the benefit of being in the commercial market versus the consumer market is a lot of the evidence is written in nature, uh, so you don't have a lot of oral evidence, which is the case on the consumer side. Okay. Uh, a lot of it's uh, written, uh, written, and so there's it's a you know there's tangible documents that you can review and and make your decision based on on those documents. Now, there's always going to be things that come out of left field uh, through discovery and all the rest of it. But, um, you know, it all starts with case merits, <laughs> followed quickly thereafter by the solvency of the defendant. Because of you course. can spend all sorts of money, but if that's, that, that defendant doesn't isn't solvent, or there's even some question mark around their insolvency, uh, and, and associated with that is, is enforcement and collectability, because they could be very solvent, but all their assets are in, in various jurisdictions around the world, and, and you could spend the next two years just scrambling trying to find those assets and getting getting access to them. Hmm. So that's uh, uh, equally where a lot of time and, and effort is spent. And quite frankly, a lot of the industry started really, around, as I mentioned, David versus Goliath, where they knew Goliath had a lot of assets, and so collect, defending collectability was not an issue. Uh, and it, it makes the whole process uh, that uh, that much clearer. Uh, and then it comes down to counsel, uh, both for the plaintiff and the, the defense counsel. Sometimes a funder will go in and say, listen, I love your case. Uh, we don't think the counsel you've selected is the best counsel for this type of case in this jurisdiction in front of this judge. 
So we'll give you the funding, but it's contingent on either working with another law firm or replacing your existing law firm with, you know, one of several that we've identified would be better suited to this particular case. And then there's an element of, okay, how has this defendant uh, reacted to litigation in the past? If they're, if they're the type that just has a, you know, a, philosoph- a philosophical point of view that we're, not, we're, not, we're never going to let anyone push this around, we're going to take everyone to trial, you know, generally speaking, that's not a situation that litigation finance wants to back. As I, as I mentioned before, it becomes very binary in nature. And so they try to avoid those particular circumstances. Um, the other element is which jurisdiction, which, which judge or which arbiter, arbiter is involved. Uh, as that can have a big impl- implication on in terms of the potential uh, outcome in, in the favor of the plaintiff. And then um, alignment of interest. And that, that has more to do with the funding contract. And typically, there's a, a tripartite agreement between the law firm, who typically has some skin in the game in terms of some contingent fee arrangement, the, the litigation funder and the plaintiff. And so um, they want to make sure that people are motivated uh, for a positive outcome, that uh, they have some money at risk, some some uh, monetary um, amount at risk, and that if at the end of the day there's a settlement that's put on the table that you know maybe doesn't reach the initial target, there's going to be some reasonable folks at the table that say, yeah, you know what, this is it's not quite what we wanted, but it's close enough, and let's move on and take the money and continue to build our business or what have you. Yeah. So right. there's a there's sort of a rational thought element to the whole exercise. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Ah, oh, interesting, interesting. And uh, final question to the to the world of litigation finance. Um, generally, what's the, the the timeline for these cases, or or excuse yeah. me, for those who invest in in litigation? So, so from a from a fund perspective, typically funds have about three year investment periods, and then uh, That's five. Okay. It's I, I'd say generally speaking, it's about half of the duration as what you find in leverage buyout, which typically tend to be you know, five-year investment periods and then 10-year harvest. Uh, here you have about exactly half that. In terms of duration, the general average is about uh, 24 months to uh, 30 months, so two to two and a half years. However, it's very dependent on uh, the, the case type and the case size. So as you can imagine, the more at risk, uh, the more entrenched people get and the more likely are they there to push the case to a settlement uh, on the you know the proverbial court steps because there is so much at risk perhaps even the 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 viability of the ongoing defendant that they have no choice but to fight to a certain degree versus smaller cases I, I particularly think that litigation is, is funding is a little bit more impactful because a the dollars are not as large uh, and therefore their impact on the defendant are, are not as significant uh, and therefore it leads to the parties coming together to some sort of settlement. And then cases like international arbitration, where it's fairly procedural, you, you probably have two uh, different um, uh, jurisdictions involved, you have a lot of people involved. Uh, again, typically, the, the numbers tend to be larger, those take, uh, those take longer uh, periods of time, three to five years is not uncommon. Sometimes you get a, you'll get a patent case that, that may extend on even longer, it, it yep. depends on how much if there's an appeal process, and then at the odd time, you'll you'll go to the Supreme Court. There's actually a case in, in Canada involving a company called I4I versus Microsoft. It went right to the Supreme Court. Microsoft lost, but, you know, that was 14 oh, that, years in the making. Was that not Kit something, Kip, out of Calgary, Alberta? 
I think it was a Toronto-based business. It was backed by um, a venture capital group called McLean Watson. Okay. Um, and I think uh, Northwater was also involved in that one as well. But uh, it, and it had to do with Microsoft Word and a piece of technology that that I4I had created that Microsoft ultimately uh, let's let's call that emulated. <laughs> I don't want to get too Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Oh, Edward, really, really good stuff, man. Um, you've obviously had a really interesting career in the world of private equity and now in litigation finance and building these funds or the fund. And, and I'm curious, what have been some of the most inter- instrumental lessons you've had in your career and things that you look back and kind of pivotal moments where you're like, yeah, that was a, that was a game changer, good or bad? So there was there was one one investment that we got involved in. Unfortunately, it was a, it was a complete wipeout for for the fund. But um, and and I think it, you know, the lesson learned there was it came down to management. It was it was a fast growing business, but right from the get go, you know, the management team was a little bit fast and loose, and we thought we could sort of wrap some structure around them. Mm-hmm. But just the nature of the individual was uh, to really oppose structure. And and so that ended up being very difficult. And it was in it was in a niche enough marketplace that it wasn't easy to pluck out that CEO and put a new one in, which you know in the private equity space was not uncommon, at least for our group. You know, seventy five percent of the time we 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 would have to change out uh, the CEO. Now sometimes it was by design going into right, the okay. investment. Other times it was by by experience throughout the course of the investment. And so, you know, all that to say, sometimes you can't uh, change the, the stripes of the tiger. And, yeah. Huh. Uh, and so just there needs to be a bit of a meeting of the minds going into investment, exactly what, what is required and make sure that you're dealing with a, a, an individual or a team that can adapt to the extent that change is required. And that, and that was definitely a lesson learned on that one. Oh, interesting. And then uh, to apply it in, on, on the litigation finance side, not, not so much a lesson learned, but it was really an insight uh, from uh, Everything that I've seen in the marketplace, diversification is critical. And, and in part because it is a relatively nascent asset class, there's still a lot of experimentation going on. And so while you might invest with a manager who's got a great pedigree and track record, uh, it, it probably means it's, it's a relatively short track record. And it probably means there was some experimentation going on in that fund, and, and that may continue into the new fund where there's different case types, different sizes, different jurisdictions, mm. and, and those could result in, in, in very different outcomes. And so you know, I'd say that was a sort of key lesson learned on, on the litigation finance side. Oh, interesting stuff. A couple more questions before we'll, we'll wrap up. Interesting guys. So I'm, I'm curious, what are, you, what are you reading now? You've got some books behind you. Where do you find your information? My information, mainly from, a, from an industry perspective, is uh, a lot of it's talking to industry folks. From an industry perspective, I'm trying to write as much as I can about the industry to really uh, make it a little bit more of a transparent market. One of the one of the knocks against the industry is the opacity of, of the marketplace, and and I'm trying to uh, add an element of transparency to really uh, attract new investors to the ask us because it is growing and it does require capital, uh, but it's only going to require capital if there's uh, data available. And, and investors can ultimately, specifically institutional investors, can ultimately get comfortable with the return profile and the volatility and, and all the rest of it. Yeah, uh, so that's from a from a business perspective. From a personal perspective, I was recently given um, the uh, Bruce Springsteen book uh, "Born to Run," which was a great read. I had no, uh, I didn't really know uh, Bruce that well in terms of his whole upbringing and background, but. 
it was a great case study in perseverance. He's, he's struggled a lot in his life. Uh, it's, it's well known mental health perspective, but, okay. but even before that, you know, just getting his band up and running and, and he's a guy that doesn't give up. And this was a great lesson to be learned uh, from that in, in terms of perseverance. And so uh, that was a great read. Oh, nice. Interesting. Well, good stuff. Any final notes or any thoughts for the audience? I, you know, I think for those uh, that are interested in the litigation finance space, there's probably three main things I'd like to sort of convey. One is, um, you know, diligence is critical in this marketplace. Uh, it's not a very homogeneous market in terms of the managers that you would interact with in, in, in diligence. You know, you have to spend some time getting to know the people involved, how they approach the market, how they think about the marketplace. Some of the better management teams that I've come across are not strictly uh, litigators. There are typically litigators married with a, a strong person that has some element of capital markets. It could be a private equity hedge fund guy, uh, someone from specialty finance, but someone who can uh, really think about the portfolio construction, the diversification, the concentration limits, elements of things that you need in the funding contract to mitigate risk, all that sort of stuff. Uh, the second thing is, as I mentioned, diversification in this asset class is, is critical. If you get involved thinking, oh, I'm going to score a big home run, it, it may happen, but it may not. And, mm. and it would be a shame if you if it didn't happen and, and really the fault of that decision laid in the fact that you didn't really apply portfolio theory to, to the asset class, which is, I think, a critical piece of investing in, in litigation finance. And then sort of associated with, with diligence is really manager selection in this asset class, where it stands today, uh, manager selection, selection is critical. You, you really need to spend the time. And, you know, I've, I've probably know uh, close to 100 different managers globally. And it was only through that uh, two or three year experience did I really under- start to understand the differences between the managers, uh, what made a good manager good and, and poor manager poor. And so, you know, you really have to spend time in this marketplace, I guess. Very interesting. Well, Edward, thanks so much for taking the time. Uh, I really enjoyed our conversation. We appreciate it. And thank you for spending the time with me. It's not, not many people reach out to the litigation finance community. It's a, it's a pretty niche market. And so I appreciate you uh, introducing it to your audience and uh, taking the time to learn a little bit more about it. Nice. Well, I like niche and this was awesome. So thank you very much. <laughs> Doesn't get nichier than this. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.